Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Indeed, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we pray that you will enlighten our minds and speak to our hearts so that we can truly believe in you and marvel at your grace and learn to obey you with all our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that was probably the longest Bible reading ever in this church as far as I can tell. Uh, and it didn't feel to me like a Bible reading, more like, more like story time, right? It was such an entertaining and delightful uh, read. And uh, it's wonderful that the Bible is just full of stories. And we do lose out if we don't focus on the stories and we just focus on all the, you know, the other bits. So today, as we come to look at this story of Samson... Uh, I'm sure it's a familiar story to many of us. Uh, you probably have learned it in Sunday school. If you went to Sunday school, I, I know that I did. And I'm trying to remember back what my Sunday school teachers told me many, many years ago about this story. But, and I went to check out some uh, those of Bible story books to see what they made of this story. And I found that most Bible story books just tell the story, but they don't give an interpretation to the story. You see, And this is the, this is the puzzling thing about the story, which can be troubling to some of us. You see, the trouble is, what do you do with a story like this in the Bible? You know, if you're a Sunday school teacher, or even if you're not a Sunday school teacher, you might be wondering, what are we supposed to get out of this Samson story? You know, are we supposed to be like Samson? Are we supposed to be the opposite of Samson? You know, what, what should we learn from this? Now today, I'm glad that we did a whole Bible reading, because I'm going to really take you just on a whirlwind tour through the book. I'm not going to stop at every part and you know discuss every part when I did the out- sermon outline for you that was done a few days ago I was very ambitious and I thought I would cover everything but obviously that's impossible for four chapters so I'm assuming that you know the story from our Bible reading so what we are interested to find out in now is what do we learn for ourselves from this story what's relevant to our lives today so now let's keep your Bibles open at Judges 13 to 16 and let's Let's see what it has to say to us. Now, throughout the book of Judges that we've done so far, we've seen a repeating cycle. Okay, and this cycle is Israel's sin, Israel's judgment by God, and Israel's salvation by a judge. Okay, so this has been a continuing cycle. So again and again we read, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and God handed them over to their enemies, and then they cry out to the Lord for deliverance, And God sends a judge to save them. So here in chapter 13, we read and we see those familiar words, again they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, verse 1. Followed by, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. But then something is missing from this. Something has dropped out from this general pattern. And what is it? Well, we don't see the words, they cried out to the Lord, for deliverance, because it moves straight to the story of Samson. We no longer hear them crying out to God. See, what's wrong with Israel is, it seems that now they are so used to living under the Philistines, it's become like a status quo for them. You know, They've forgotten what God has saved them for. They've forgotten what God put them in the land to do, and they've forgotten what it feels like to be masters in their own land. 
no comments about the Singapore election there, but uh, that is probably a gripe that some people feel in this country too at the moment. Now, they've gotten used to being slaves of other people and they have no desire to be rescued from the situation. So what does God do in response to that? Well, He takes action. God acts. God takes the initiative to save Israel. So even though they have no desire to be saved, they don't acknowledge that they need any help from God, He still takes it upon Himself to save them. He prepares a deliverer for them. Now, with all the other judges that we've seen in the past, they're all kind of ready-made. They're already there when God needs them, right? God chose them to save Israel. But in this case, it's different. See, here, for the only time, God designs a deliverer from, from scratch. He creates it from nothing, you see. This is the only time that we are told of how one of the judges was born. So God saves in the a, in a most interesting way here. He starts where, you know, the most hopeless situation, the most difficult situation, that's where God starts, you see, from a barren woman with no children. God starts where human ability and strength have failed. If you remember back in the history of Israel to the beginning of Israel, God started this nation of Israel with a 100-year-old man, Abraham, and his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, who was barren. See, what is impossible for God, and what is impossible for man, is possible with God. So just like with Abraham and Sarah, back in those times, God sends an angel to announce a special birth. See, Manoah and his wife are two very ordinary Israelites from a very obscure tribe called Dan. There's nothing special at all about Manoah and his wife. But God's angel seeks out this person, this Manoah's wife, and tells her that God will take away her barrenness and she will give birth to a son. And not just any son, this son is no ordinary person. It says in verse 5, he will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. And that's not all. He's special in another way as well. See, he has to be a Nazarite. Now, what is a Nazarite? Well, to understand what a Nazarite is, we need to look back at the book of Numbers. So let's turn to, I'm going to put it up here, Numbers chapter 6, and read some verses to you. Okay. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink, and must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them, because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. So a Nazarite is somebody who is 
consecrated, dedicated to the law in a special way. See, that word consecrated is actually the word holy. He must be holy to the Lord. And that means, what does holy mean? Holy means set apart, set apart to the Lord, separated from the common and the unclean, to be holy and, and pure and devoted to the Lord. And there are three things that this Nazarite must do to express that holiness. So firstly, must not eat anything made from grapes. So the wine or vinegar or grape juice or raisins, anything like that, is not to eat. And secondly, he must not cut his hair. And thirdly, he must not touch any dead bodies at all. Now you can see from the book of Numbers that this Nazarite vow was taken for a limited period, especially if you read later on in that, in that chapter. Okay? It was a temporary vow. And at the end of the vow, you just cut your hair off. But in Samson's case, he is meant to be a Nazarite for life, from the day he's born until the day he dies. Now, I, don't, I, don't, I can't imagine what it's like to have never ever cut your hair in your entire life. Probably his shampoo bills will be very high. don't know. But the thing is, Samson is meant to be separated from ordinary things and specially dedicated to God for his whole life. See, from even before he was born, God has appointed him, God has chosen him for a very big job, that is, to save Israel. See how God takes the initiative here to, to save Israel? I mean, God is constantly good to Israel, despite the fact that they don't call on him, despite the fact that they have forgotten about him. See, Israel even thinks that God doesn't care about us anymore. Somehow God is against us. God is out there to get us. See, if you remember back a few weeks ago to the story of Gideon. Now, in, in Judges chapter 6, this is what Gideon himself says to God. I'll, I'll put it up here. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our father told us about, etc., etc.? The Lord has abandoned us. You see, that is what Gideon accuses God of doing. And Gideon, Gideon's response to God just is typical of all of Israel. See, the problem is they don't believe in God's grace. But the truth, the real truth is that God loves Israel, God has their best interests at heart, and God goes out of His way to be gracious to His people. Now, are we sometimes too like the people of Israel? Now, sometimes we think that we have to pester God, we have to twist His arm so that He can be good to us. You know, if we turn our eyes away for a minute, God may suddenly ambush us and do something that we don't want Him to do, right? And if something bad happens to us, we think, oh, maybe God is punishing me. And we do something wrong, we think, oh, I'm sure God will never forgive me. See, we think of God having His angry face all the time. Angry face turned towards us, but no loving face at all. But here in Judges, we have a very different picture of God. Very different. What we see is a nation that has turned away from God, not the other way around. And we see God being gracious and loving. He cares for His people more than they care for themselves. Do you rest in God's grace? Or do you have a simple and childlike trust in God's goodness? Because if God can act to save Israel, even if they didn't ask Him to, surely He will be also gracious 
to you. See, Jesus in the book of Matthew says this on the next uh, slide. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And the greatest gift that God has given to us is his Son, the Lord Jesus. That is our greatest gift, salvation in Christ. So let us rest and rejoice in God's love and goodness and grace to us and let us simply take his word at face value and thank him for his grace and his initiative in saving us. Now chapter 13 leads us to expect great things from this Samson. See, it says in verse 24, the Lord blessed him. It says in verse 25, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. And now he's all grown up. And we want to see what's he going to do for God. How is he going to begin to save Israel from the Philistines? Well, as you all know, we are severely disappointed when we turn to chapter 14, isn't it? See, we read in chapter 14 verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. And when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. See, here is the one that God has appointed from before birth to save Israel. Here is this Nazarite who is supposed to be, have a lifelong dedication to be set apart to the Lord. And what does he want? He wants something that even ordinary Israelites are not supposed to have. He wants a, a foreign, uh, and he wants to intermarry with one of the Canaanites. See, that is forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy. But Samson here doesn't seem to care. He doesn't care. Of course, his parents are not happy. But he just kind of brushes them aside. He doesn't really care. He just insists on what, does, what he wants. Now, why? Why would he want a Philistine woman? They see, I mean, the parents make a lot of sense. They say, come on, there's so many other girls out here, you know, one of the Israelites. Why do you have to go and choose this Philistine woman? And he says in verse 3, because she's the right one for me. And literally in the Hebrew language, that phrase is, she is right in my eyes. She is right in my eyes. And again in verse 7, she was right in his eyes. You see, that little phrase really sums up what was wrong with Israel and with Samson. You see, it's not about pleasing God, it's not about obeying God's commands, it's about what is right in my eyes. What pleases me? What I want? Now all those years ago, Frank Sinatra sang this, isn't it? I'll do it my way. I don't care about God's way or what anyone else says. See, Samson is really a, 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 a picture of Israel. He did whatever was right in his own eyes. And later on, in the next two weeks, when we read through the book of Judges, we'll see that that's exactly what Israel did. So, in, is, uh, in Judges 21, uh, on the next slide, it says, this is the last verse in the book of Judges, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And the words as he saw fit here are literally, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, doing what is right in our own eyes is really the definition of sin. Perhaps, 
you might be like Samson. Maybe you want to marry an unbeliever like Samson, even though you know it's wrong. Or you want a, a sexual liaison that God forbids. Or maybe for you, doing what is right in your own eyes is being greedy, being dishonest, treating people unjustly. The lesson here is don't be like Samson. Repent and turn back to God and do what is right in God's eyes, not in your eyes. So as we come back to the story, in verse 5, Samson hauls his parents off to go and get this bride for him. And on his way, he seems to have been separated from his parents for a while and he meets this lion come charging at him. And verse 16 says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power and he just ripped the lion apart with his bare hands. And he didn't tell anyone. And sometime later, he walked past the same place and he saw the lion's carcass there dried up in the heat and he saw that the bees had made a honeycomb in the carcass. So he went to get some honey, which is what you do, right? Now remember that Samson is a Nazarite. He's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to touch any dead bodies, okay? But here he's touching a dead lion's body. He doesn't care, right? So obviously the Spirit of the Lord coming down upon him hasn't given him an ability to obey God. The Spirit has just given him the physical brute strength to fight. And at Samson's wedding, there is a big, he throws a big banquet. Okay? And he was in high spirits. So who knows, he maybe had some alcohol as well, even though he's not really supposed to. right? Uh, and he made this deal with the 30 groomsmen there that the bride's family gave him. If you can answer my riddle, he says, then I'll give you each a, 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 what do you call it? a linen garment and a set of clothes. In those times, linen garment was kind of like the inner wear. And the set of clothes was a, a really nice set of clothes, not just the kind that you wear for ordinary, but the special occasions. And they took on the challenge. You know, maybe they thought, come on, guys, we are, firstly, we are Philistines, we are smarter than these Israelites, and secondly, there's 30 of us, and thirdly, we have seven days to work this out, okay? So they took it on, right? But actually, Samson's reader is impossible to answer, like, come on, right? I mean, it is much harder than thought. And we know the answer to the riddle. I won't go through what it is. Because we've already been told in the story. But of course, nobody else knows. Not even Samson's parents know the answer. So these Philistine men start to put pressure on Samson's wife okay, to find out the answer. So they probably say something like, you know, is this some kind of trick? You, know, you send your husband to come and put, you know, rob us at your wedding? You know, this is not Chinese wedding. You know, we don't have to give such a big ang pao here. Okay? So they threaten to burn her and her whole family to death. And what does Samson's wife do? Well, she hasn't got a choice, right? So she uses a secret weapon that all wives have for getting their husbands to do what they want. <laughs> okay? Cry and complain and nag and accuse him, you don't love me. Okay? I'm not talking about my wife here. I don't misunderstand. Okay? <laughs> okay. See, in the end, he gives in, right, after a few days only. He's quite a softy when, when it comes to women's nagging. Okay. He can't take it. So, he tells her the secret, and she tells the Philistines, and the Philistines tell him, oh, we've got your riddle, and Samson's temper explodes. He says in verse 19, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and God used this event to destroy Philistines 
who were the enemies of God's people. Samson actually goes to Ashkelon, he says, which, uh, which is a town quite far away from Timna. I'll show you a map. I hope this works. Okay, so um, Timna is here, and Ashkelon is right here by the coast, and it's actually quite far away. And I think maybe, maybe he avoided the towns nearby Timna because he didn't want people in Timna to find out about this, how he solved the problem, right? So he goes far away to Ashkelon, kills 30 Philistines, grabs their clothes, goes back to Timna, dumps them you know, in front of the Philistines, and then he just storms off in rage and leaves his bride behind high and dry. Now obviously if you're the bride, uh, you know, this would be a very humiliating experience, right? Very, very embarrassing. You know, can you imagine if Prince William did that to Kate? It wouldn't be great, right? So, what did her father do to stop the embarrassment? He gave her in marriage to the best man. Okay? Now, what about, we'll move on to the, to the next few incidents in, uh, in chapter 15. And actually, you can see a kind of pattern coming out here. There's a, a, a pattern that's just repeated here with all these little stories. And there is, there is a pattern of a reversal of fortunes for the Philistines. So, the Philistines think uh, they've done something to Samson and they think that they've got him. They think that he's now come in their power and suddenly their fortunes are reversed. Samson takes his revenge and you know something bad happens to the Philistines. Okay? So each time you either see the Philistines getting killed or Philistine property getting damaged. And this cycle is repeated over and over again. Okay, Philistines think they've won the victory and then suddenly they get defeated. It's just you know it's, it, it's almost funny when you read it, right? It's almost like watching, you know, Roadrunner or Tom and Jerry or Tweety Bird, you know, where all the bad guy tries to plot something really bad, but it always comes back to them in the end. They're the ones who get caught in their own traps. So let me show you on the, on the next uh, slide, this kind of repeating cycle in the book of Judges. Okay, at least here. So we've seen, we've seen this one, where the Philistines thought they were getting away with it, and then they, they lost out. And then you see it. There are many repeating similar themes that happens. So the next one is that Samson finds out that his Philistine uh, father-in-law has given his wife away and he's angry. So he takes revenge. And what does he do? He burns up the, the, the grain and the olive groves, the vineyards of the Philistines. I can't condone what he did, especially not to the foxes. Like, okay. But uh, this is what happened. And then the next cycle... The Philistines burn up his wife and his father-in-law and then Samson takes revenge by killing a lot of them. Now, as these cycles keep going on, we're beginning to notice something about this Samson. He's rather a hot-tempered fellow, isn't he? And he's impulsive, he's irresponsible, he's a bit cocky, he's not very respectful to his parents. See, when you compare, if you think about the book of Judges as a whole, Samson is the last judge that is described in the book. And if you compare him to the first judge that we saw in Othniel back in chapter 1 to chapter 3, there is a huge contrast. You see, Othniel deliberately goes out to conquer the Canaanites and obey God's commands. But what about Samson? He's just interested in his own agenda. And Othniel uh, marries a, a good Israelite woman who helps him accomplish God's plans. But Samson goes off and gets a Philistine wife who just is trouble after trouble. 
And Othniel's wife is the incentive for Othniel to go and obey God and conquer the land. But in Samson's case, it leads to him living among the Philistines. See, the contrast between the first judge and the last judge parallels for us what is happening to Israel in this period of time. See, their spiritual state is going from bad to worse. So it's not just a repeating cycle of sin, uh, judgment, and God's deliverance, but it is a downward spiraling cycle. You know, it's going worse. Each time the cycle is repeated, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So if you thought Gideon was bad, and you thought Jephthah was worse, well, Samson is really the worst out of them all, isn't it? I mean, he's probably the worst judge of all time. He hardly even deserves to be given the title of judge because he doesn't do anything that a judge is supposed to do. Now we're moving on to the next uh, lot in the cycle. So Samson goes and hides in the territory of Judah from the Philistines. They come and get him. And then the men of Judah just meekly hand him over to the Philistines. And just when the Philistines think that they've got him and they shout of victory, Samson uh, again, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson. Samson breaks these ropes and uses a dead donkey jawbone and kills a, a thousand Philistine men. The same cycle, isn't it? So every time the Philistine thinks, gotcha, Samson, uh, God intervenes with Samson and dead Philistines everywhere. Now it's sad to see how this whole tale never rises above personal vengeance for Samson. In verse 9, if you look at uh, chapter um, 15, verse 9, the Philistines say, we have come to do to him as he did to us. That is, our, our motivation is revenge. And Samson's reply in verse 11 is, I merely did to them what they did to me. You see, his motivation is also revenge. So it's just an ongoing cycle of revenge Samson never once thinks of what is good for the nation. He doesn't think what is God's command. He's only acting in his own interest, which is to take revenge on Philistines. But for all his faults, at least Samson realizes who the real enemy is. You see, at least he's not like Judah who kind of like so scared of the Philistines, they just accept the fact that the Philistines are rulers. No, Samson knows that the Philistines are the enemy. And after the great victory that he had with the jawbone, he goes and prays to God. See, he he's had a huge long uh, battle, probably very tiring to, to kill a thousand men with a jawbone. And uh, in his prayer, he shows that he trusts in God. He says God is the one who gives him the victory. He's full of, he, he's so thirsty, he's almost about to die. And he prays to God for water. And God answers his prayer. See, here we see that Samson at least has a simple trust in God. God splits open this hollow place, which is most likely a hollowed out stone for crushing olives, and water gushes out. God is with Samson. You see, it emphasizes three times in this chapter, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Three times. And in Hebrews chapter 11, surprisingly for us, Samson is mentioned as somebody who had faith in God. So I'll, re- I'll show you Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? 
I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets and a few others. These were all commended for their faith and yet none of them received what had been promised. Yes, we know that Samson has many, many flaws but at the very least he has a basic level of trust in God. So now we come to chapter 16. Now here it becomes very clear to us what is his biggest weakness of all. And what is that? There's women. Okay, more particularly it's Philistine women. See again he falls for a Philistine woman. This time it's a prostitute. Because sex is more important to him than obeying God. But God uses this for his own purpose. See, again, we have this pattern of reversal of Philistine fortunes when Samson escapes their trap and carries away their city gates. And then we come to the most famous part of the Samson story, which is Samson and Delilah. Now this time, we are not actually told that she is a Philistine woman, but clearly she's not a good woman. Okay, She could be Philistine. But here for the first time, we are told in verse 4 that she... He is in love with her, and that was never mentioned with the other women. But Delilah is not in love with Samson, it seems. See, what is, she is in love with money. See, she's offered 1,100 shekels of silver from each of the five Philistine rulers if she can deliver Samson to them. So that's 5,500. That's, that's quite a lot of money, I'm sure. And maybe she's also in love with power. You know, she loves the feeling that she has power over this most powerful man alive. Now many people wonder how come Samson can be so stupid to fall for this, this trick, you know, after she's already tried it three times. Well, I think it's not as, not as uh, easy as it looks, you see. Because if you read the story carefully, Delilah has this Philistine man hiding in the back room where he, he doesn't know they're there. And as far as Samson is concerned, Delilah was just kind of playing a game, teasing him, you know, maybe getting him to show how strong he is, you know, break these seven thongs, break the ropes and all this kind of stuff, right? And uh, the third one, Samson really comes quite close to the real secret. And he says, put my hair in this uh, loom and weave it in. But, see, slowly, slowly his defenses are being broken down. And, uh, of course, none of the above worked. And so Delilah wouldn't have called the men out and therefore Samson never knew that they were there. So eventually the Philistine soldiers get tired of this game okay, and they all go off home to their own places. But Delilah keeps trying, you see, because she doesn't want to miss the jackpot. So she keeps trying. She uses the same strategy as the other woman, right? Keep nagging him, keep complaining. How come you don't love me? All this kind of stuff. And eventually he breaks down, right? And he tells her the secret. He tells her this secret. Maybe he thought, I can trust her because I love her so much. You know, she's a good person and, you know, she loves me too. That was the biggest mistake he, has, he ever made, isn't it? And so Delilah called back this first time and got his head chopped off. And it says, in verse 19, his strength left him. Now, why did his strength leave him? It's not just because of the hair, I mean the hair is a sign that he is set apart to the Lord. So cutting the hair indicates that he's breaking his sacred, unbreakable vow 
to God. But why is the hair so special? I mean, he's a Nazarite. He's done other things that Nazarites are not supposed to do, right? Like touching dead bodies. Well, we don't really know, but in the angel's announcement in chapter 13, the angel only focused on the rule about not cutting the hair. See, the emphasis, that is, that is the, the rule for Samson. So it seems that not cutting the hair is the ultimate indication of whether Samson is sticking with this vow or not. So in any case, the real reason that Samson's strength has left him is in verse 20. It's because the Lord had left him. The Lord had left him. You see, in chapter 14 to 15, it mentions three times the Spirit of the Lord is with Samson. But in chapter 16, there is no mention at all that the Spirit of the Lord is with Samson. See, Samson seems to have uh, become presumptuous, become complacent after all those victories against the Philistines. He's you know, probably resting on his laurels a bit. He should have known the danger of giving this secret to a Philistine woman. And his desire to please Delilah is clearly more important to him than his sacred devotion to God. That's where his priorities are. And yet, even though he treated God's gift and God's call with such contempt, he never expected that God would take away the strength. See, in verse 20, he woke up and he thought, I'll just go out uh, as before and shake myself free, just like all those other times. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. God leaves him to the Philistines, to the mercy of the Philistines. And they are quite a scary lot. They gouge out his eyes, they take him down to their main city there, Gaza. And he has to grind grain at the mill in the prison, which is a job for slaves and and in those days, it was very humiliating for Samson. See, God's mighty hero reduced to being a mere mortal, humiliated and very pathetic, right? And all because he chose to do what was right in his own eyes and ended up with no eyes. See, here is a man who has such immense blessing from God, but he just took it all for granted. With all his supernatural gifts, who knows what he could have accomplished for Israel, isn't it? But all he was interested in was doing what he wanted. And having so many privileges, all he cared about was having what he could not have, having what the Philistines across the road had. He wanted the blessing. He didn't want the responsibility that came with the blessing. He thought, never mind, God will always be around when I need him. Isn't that, what, isn't that a picture of Israel too? See, a nation which has received so much wonderful blessing from God, yet again and again they presume on God's goodness. They think God will always be there for us when we cry out to Him, when we turn to Him, we need Him. And aren't we also sometimes like that? You know, we forget the grace that we have received from God. And all we are interested in are those things that we cannot have. We think, ah, so what about heaven, eternal life, all these things? You know, I'm more interested in what I can have now. I don't want to wait till, you know, who knows when. Uh, why can't I marry a non-Christian? Or why can't I chase after money? Why do I have to be a good person? So let us not despise God's grace 
like Samson. Let us not become complacent or take his gifts for granted because it's no small matter for God to give us salvation and eternal life. That is a huge and big gift. So don't give up your faith, but continue hoping in God and wait patiently for Him because God will keep His promise to us. Now God may have left Samson to the Philistines. He allowed the Philistines to capture him because he wanted to judge Samson for his sin. But the Philistines get the wrong interpretation, right? They think, in verse 23, that their god Dagon gave them the victory and they start praising Dagon. And they bring Samson out into the great temple of Dagon in Gaza to mock him, to humiliate him, get him to dance around like a buffoon, like a circus show. But God is not mocked. No, God does not give his glory to anyone else. He is the one who gave uh, Samson into their hands, not Dagon. So God has something in store for the Philistines. God is going to give them the biggest reversal of fortunes they have seen yet, isn't it? So here comes Samson, helpless, led by the hand, and he prays to God in verse 28. Oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. Oh God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my true eyes. Alright, so he's still concerned more about his agenda of revenge than about God's honor. Samson at least has learned an important lesson through all that pain and humiliation. See, he has at least been reminded that he is nothing without God and that he has to depend on God for everything. God is his only source of strength. So he cries out to God and independence and God is merciful. God answered his prayer. Isn't it? And this Philistine's praising their Dagon in this temple. Now this temple is filled with people, it says, it's filled with Philistine rulers and dignitaries. And just like Westminster Abbey a few days ago, right? Filled with, you know, VIPs and leaders. And imagine if the roof had collapsed during the wedding, right? That would be a huge national disaster, isn't it? Now here, the Philistines are, all their VIPs are here. And in the middle of it all, Samson brings the house down. Well, literally. Okay. God strikes the Philistines right at the heart of their religion, right at the heart of their false god. And God has the last laugh. Now, we've looked broadly at this story of Samson. There's so many other things that we could talk about. But as we ask, what is the moral of the story here? What lessons can we get from this Samson story? Well, firstly, we learn that God is a God of grace. See, He is a God who takes the initiative to save His people. Despite their sin, despite Samson's sin, despite Israel's sin, again and again He answers their prayer. And even when they don't pray to Him, He still acts on their behalf. Now, if you think, I'm a miserable failure, God can never forgive me, think of Samson. If God can have mercy on Samson, He can have mercy on us probably, isn't it? As it says in Hebrews chapter 4. Let me 
read to you. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Turn to God. Now secondly, we must recognize in Samson our own sinful hearts. Samson may have a basic level of faith, but he's not an example for us to emulate. He's highly flawed. See, we see he is sinful like us. We are sinful like him. And we should ask ourselves, in what way am I tempted to be like Samson? You know, are we tempted to get in bed with the enemy, so to speak, like Samson? Do we give in to being seduced by unbelievers, by the world around us? And if we know something is wrong, do we still keep doing it? Do we chase only after what is right in our own eyes? Do we take God for granted? Do we presume on His mercy? If so, we have to return to God so that He can have mercy on us. And lastly, we have a, the, the last lesson here is that we have a better deliverer than Samson was. See, when we look at Samson's life, we are so disappointed. When we look at the decline in Israel's obedience, we realize that this judge's system is just not working, isn't it? There's no way that the judges can rescue Israel from their sin. We need something better than the judges. We need something better than Samson. And it turns out that God does have a plan after all. See, Samson, it says, is only going to begin to save Israel from the Philistines, but God is going to continue this salvation plan through people like King David and Solomon and so on until he gets finally to Jesus. See, besides Samson, there is another man whose birth was miraculously announced through an angel to his mother. And besides Samson, there is another man who was born to be the saviour of God's people. There is another man on whom the Spirit of God rested. Another man who was betrayed by somebody close to him. And another man whose greatest victory was in his death. And that man is Jesus. Samson points forward to Jesus. See, Jesus is the perfect saviour that Samson failed so miserably to be. Samson was just a shadow, but Jesus is the reality. Samson only began to save, but Jesus brings salvation in all its fullness. So He is the one who saves us from sin and judgment and death. Jesus is God's ultimate expression of grace to us. That is how God shows His grace to us. And so, let us be thankful that we live in a better era than the people in Judges because we have Jesus. So let's give thanks now for Jesus. Let us trust Him. Let us obey Him today and every day until He returns. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have heard of Your amazing grace towards Israel and towards Samson and we are reminded once again of Your amazing grace towards us. Like then, we were dead in our sins, but you rescued us in Christ Jesus. Help us to truly understand the depth of your love and your grace, 
so that we can come confidently into your presence because of what Jesus has done for us. And yet let us not become complacent or take your grace for granted, but help us to be always alert for the subtle lure of sin, for the seductive lies of the flesh and the world and the devil. Deliver us from temptation and help us to have true faith in Jesus, your appointed Saviour, and to obey Him with our whole hearts so that we shall one day receive our promised inheritance in your eternal kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.